So Rebecca, a patron wrote in about a clinical situation that I wanted to get your opinion on. Is it okay if we read her email and then you can provide some commentary? Go for it. All right. Well, let's introduce the podcast first. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom, and I am a mental health counselor uh, with a full practice in South Seattle. Meaning that you're quite busy. <laughs> don't call me. Please don't call. <laughs> All right. Th this email is from patron Ashley, and she says, I'm in my first year of graduate school. Oh, no, no. In my first year of graduate school in the past, I was placed in a community health clinic doing outpatient therapy. I worked with a variety of clients, including both children and adults. Although I'm not happy about it, I did have a favorite client. What do you think, Rebecca? Is it okay to have a favorite client? I think everybody has a favorite client. Yeah. Uh, who's Who's been your favorite client? Would you? Oh, I've had some favorites. But when I was at my first internship, no, my second internship, I had a favorite client for sure. What What defines a favorite client? Uh, I just looked forward so much to seeing them every week because they were such a unique and spirited presence on the planet. And, you know, I just kept them in my heart. And I th even now, I can still picture this very young person's face. Um, yeah, I still think about them. Something about them really touched me. So by definition, you have a least favorite client, too? Oh, I think everybody's had a least favorite client, too. <laughs> All right. <It's> like... <laughs> Patron Ashley goes on and says, My favorite client, he was someone who struggled with opioid addiction for 10 mm -hmm. years. I first met him while he was actively detoxing. We worked together for eight months. He was sober while we worked together. Although inappropriate, he was the one client that I did not terminate communication with at the end of my internship. Mm, I can, I, yeah, red flag. I continued to talk with him because I had every intention of getting another outpatient job and continue and continuing to see him at my new job. I also believed that the core to his suffering and substance use was his lack of security due to his troubling childhood. I wanted to continue to be the secure base that he never had before. What are your thoughts on that, Rebecca? Uh, yeah, no good. <laughs> no good. <laughs> How's that for a clinical opinion? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no what, do you, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? Uh, well, this is common that people think since they've connected with this person, they're the only person that will ever connect with this person. This was actually one of my big things that I would shut down in consultation when someone would say, I'm the only person that can reach this client or, you know, we're told that our agency is the only client is the only place that these clients are reached. And I would say, no, yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's not a good attitude to have as a clinician. Why? It's not good for the clients. It's not good for the institution. Think of it, you know, hopefully what you're teaching is you connect, you've connected to me and you'll connect safely to the next person too. Um, but this idea that somehow, you know, you are the magic salve that this person has been waiting for their whole life, it sets you up, it sets the power dynamic up too much. No good. Yeah, what do we call that? What do we call what you're describing in the business? Uh, inflated sense of importance? I don't know. What do you call that? <laughs> 
Well, it's related to the savior complex, right? Ah, yes. So that's a directive I love to do with people. Are you a therapist or are you a rescuer? Yeah. How do you tell the difference? Well, that's where the discussion starts. I mean, people need to start being able to see the difference themselves. Yeah. Um, But this idea, here's a big signal. I'm the only one who can blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, I mean, maybe you're the only one that can make your special really yummy souffle. Uh, Yeah. But in clinical settings, being the only one that could reach this client, it's, um, it's not a good attitude. It's not a attitude that will keep you in the business very long because you need a team working with lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not realistic to think of things that way. It's not accurate, I think, as you're saying. And it's, it's also not realistic in terms of your career because you're going to become in contact with thousands of different people. And there are going to be a percentage of them that you're going to conclude that your relationship with this person, your developed attachment is an important part of their well-being and their development, which is not inaccurate to say. But if all of those people you go beyond your professional boundaries, then you're not going to have any room for anything else because you'll have hundreds of these sorts of people in your life that you're not getting paid for and that are invading your space, you know? So, um, so there's that, uh, it's totally normal. I mean, everyone goes through this. Every therapist goes through a period. I mean, did you go through a period where you played around with these notions, Rebecca? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we all want to feel like we're that special person. Yeah. So I think, yes. And it's easy to feel, and I use the word grandiose kind of lightly, not lightly here, but it's when you first start doing the work, it's pretty amazing that somebody needs you and somebody wants you and you have this job and this person tells you all kinds of things and it feels kind of special. Um, it's just the longer you do the work, you realize like somebody might even tell you that you're the special person, but you know, they, and then it turns out they tell everybody that <laughs> like, I mean, so one of the questions I would have that for that clinician is what if it turns out that this client has told other clinicians that they're the special one? Yeah. How would that make you feel? Like maybe that's part of their pathology that they tell everyone that. Yeah, totally. And it's also possible that this client legitimately, you know, had for the first time someone in his life that he could connect to. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is, you know, saying this to everyone, It, but it could be for sure. But, um, but yeah, so all of us, including you and I have at the beginning of our career had times where, cause you know, as you say, we get into this business cause it, it's an amazing experience. We have a deep desire to help people. And in the beginning of our careers, we may have only a handful of clients that we really connect with, that we really feel like we're doing good work with. And, and, you know, by the time you get to our stage, 20 some odd years into it, we've had thousands of people that we've worked well with, you know? And so the, and another thousand that didn't work out. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you kind of start to see the law of averages kind of bumps up more and you're like, Oh, right. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. And, and my point is, is that 
when you and I meet the the thousandth and the the thousandth and oneth or whatever first the thousandth and first client that we connect with, we're like, well, this isn't shocking, you know this. It, it, it's nice when it happens, but it's happened many times before. But when you're at your internship, like I said, you might have just maybe even just one or two clients that you really feel like you're doing great work with. And so it's hard to put that in perspective and it's hard to let go and it's hard to truly terminate with them when you leave your internship. And most, if not all, clinicians at this stage will at least play around with the idea of breaking their professional boundaries by allowing further contact outside of um, outside of termination. And, and I remember being this way myself. I remember with some clients just having a really deep desire to at least want to know what's happening in their life. Right. What happened next? Yeah. I was so invested and so micro invested in their life that I, I was just like, man, are they going to are they going to pass their classes? Are they going to graduate from high school? Are they going to stay out of jail? Are they going to stay sober? Are they going to, uh, you know, stay alive? What's going to happen to this person? And I, it was so hard to, to just say goodbye and and not have any way of of connecting with this person. So so I, I would you know say that sometimes I'd say like well feel feel free to you know call me and you know let me know how you're doing and that kind of stuff and and. And um, now that's a far cry from staying in actual contact with with an ex-client. You know, just leaving your professional phone number open to updates is is one thing. But 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 anyway, yeah. So it's a save. We call it savior complex. It's normal, but it's not advised. You know, you really just have to bite the bullet when you terminate and just move on. It's it's hard. You know, you want to set up your client with as much resources as possible, as enough, enough, you know, as many recommendations as needed. And then, you know, you document it in your file and you grieve and it could be sad. You might even cry. You might talk with your supervisor, your friends, your colleagues, your own therapist. But you got to move on. You just you can't you can't hold on to that. And think of it as good practice for what's next. Right. I mean, because this work is so much about terminating over and sometimes you get to terminate a lot of times you don't even get to terminate people just disappear right so you having the skills to practice a good termination is just as important as you know your client saying goodbye yeah agreed so she goes on and she says in the email i also worked at a restaurant in town he would visit me from time to time have have some food and update me about his about his uh, sober life. Um, again, same same alarm. You want to make that alarm signal sound again? I can't remember what the last one was. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. S- same sort of thing. It, it, it's, uh, it, it, it seems harmless, and it, and it might be harmless, but there's a lot of problems. For instance, confidentiality. You know, he, he comes in to your restaurant and i'm guessing you're a serve a food server of some sort and he is at a table and he's talking to you and anyone in that restaurant can hear that conversation your coworkers will come up to you and say wow so that guy was a client of yours at your previous uh you know at your other job and that is a game you do not want to play because you could get in big trouble for that one and two you're 
kind of playing into a potential harmful situation for the client where where they could be harmed by the breaking of confidentiality plus to set a precedent where right. you that's what i was going to say yeah where you allow your you know any client to just come to your other job and start talking to you with this client you you didn't mind but what about all your other clients what if, what if you have other clients in the restaurant who see this one are they going to go oh so i have free reign to come into this restaurant and talk with my therapist whenever i want to or other other clients are going to be like wait a second so this so this therapist clearly has this other client whom she really likes and prefers over me or wait is this is this therapist unprofessional it it just it creates a situation that you don't want to get into i was actually going to go the other way and say do us all a favor and represent the field. Right. Because imagine this client goes on to other therapists saying, well, my last therapist still lets me hang out at their restaurant. Why don't you have a relationship with me after our session is over? Right. So you're setting a precedent that no other therapist is going to be able to meet. Yeah. If they're following ethical boundaries. Yeah. And people in the restaurant observing this will have a similar notion put in their heads. So we all need to represent the field well. The other thoughts that I had was, who's your supervisor? Did, did they sign off on this? And what, what, is, what did your training tell you about this? Now, again, patron Ashley is like, I know this was wrong, <laughs> you know. Right. So, so actually, this is leading up to her main question, but she's just sort of. We're pointing. not even at the main question yet. No, no. Actually, it <laughs> some uh, this takes a turn in a second, but so then she goes on. Four months after we stopped working together, he relapsed and died. Right, di that was I was waiting for this. Yeah, and he died from an. Oh, uh, right. What does it mean that she couldn't save him? So you think that being. Their buddy means that they won't relapse, but what is it? There's no way to predict that. And what if they relapse? Right. Would you blame yourself that much more because you couldn't save them? Right. Yeah. She says she was devastated by his death. She says, I had seen him just two days prior to his death. He came to work for food and to check in. He told me about a position he was offered through the homeless shelter as a peer counselor. She says, I, feel, I felt blindsided and guilty about his death. Although I have been attending to those feelings in my own therapy, I still feel paralyzed professionally. Right. So it, it sets up this dynamic of intimacy, which is why the field has boundaries in the first place. Right. Um, so that you, you know, hopefully don't get in these situations where it's become so intimate. You're sharing food together, you know, and kind of your off time. Right. Um, and, you know, you just can't maintain that if something truly devastating like this happens and people relapse. Yeah. There's, that's why there's a word for it. I mean, I think the average person goes to rehab like seven times or something. I mean, it's kind of it's yeah. expected. Right. Yeah. It, the closer the the yeah, part of the reason for the boundaries, as you say, is to protect your soul and your spirit, because especially if you're working with particular sorts of people because if you allow all these people into your heart then every week you're going to lose another person that's close to you and so you so the boundaries are for your own counter transference reasons but anyway she goes on i've noticed myself no longer interested in working clinically maybe because i don't want to lose another client 
or maybe mm -hmm. because I don't want to risk not being able to save a client from themselves. I was wondering if you could speak more to grieving the death of a client, particularly mm -hmm. to addiction. How can I heal, grieve, and continue forward? Any thoughts about that, Rebecca? Oosh. This is so interesting because I was just asked to put together a six-hour continuing education class on art therapy for grief and loss. And so I've been doing a deep dive into my experience of grief and loss as an individual, as a supervisor. So the, there was a client that died at my very first job. Can I have time to like tell a little story? Absolutely. Okay. Oof, this one was a doozy. So this was a similar to this client, dual diagnosis unit, chemically dependent, chronically mentally ill, uh, outpatient pro program. And there was an older gentleman. There was a, a morning meeting system, and you could get elected to be president and run the morning meeting. And if you choose, if they chose to really invest in the program, it was a statement about how much the community thought you were doing well. So this guy gets elected as president and will be running the meetings for three months following that. And that night he goes home and has a catastrophic heart attack and dies. And so Monday morning we had to tell the whole community that he had died and people were devastated. And this is a population that was really easily activated and um, it was incredibly painful to groove it as a community. Uh, and it was interesting my next group, I, I ran a sewing group for two hours, and people began to make a uh, a chair for him. They took one of the chairs from the meeting room and wrapped it like a memorial for him with his initials, and um, it was really powerful. But, you know, I mean, death is, wow, it changes everything. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. What else to say about that? Yeah, exactly. Death is difficult. Loss is difficult. Especially, especially sudden death is difficult. Um, you know, grief takes time. Patron Ashley, you're asking, you know, how how can you heal and grieve and, and move forward? Uh, you know, up to the point of you talking about the client dying, we've been saying boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. But now that you had let him into your heart and he had died, there's now it's there's no you can't have boundaries now because you know it's already done and your feelings are going to be there and there's no way to to you know have that go well for you if your father died similarly or your spouse or your good friend died similarly or your or your son died similarly you're not gonna get over that anytime soon that is something you're going to be suffering from and thinking about and affecting you for months, if not years. So, uh, and and it's something that I often talk about with people. I, I say because a lot of people will ask me, clients, students, you know, listeners to the podcast will say, you know, how do I how do I heal? How do I grieve? How do I get over this? And what I say is, you know, that's not the right question. The question is, is how how do I move through this pain? <laughs> You know, or or how do I accept this pain? You know, how, how do I how do I live? How do I accept the fact that I am now going to be living in pain for a long time? And that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. It's hard to accept the fact that you're going to be in pain for a long time. 
because in our society, we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about loss. And so people are quite surprised at how much it hurts. Mm-hmm. And they're quite surprised at how long it lasts. I mean, I have people 20 years later still suffering. And that is not abnormal. That's, you know, for, in fact, it would be abnormal for some losses to not be in pain 20 years later. It would, it would mean you're a psychopath or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. As I am preparing for this presentation, I'm kind of reviewing uh, so many of my clients come because of a loss of a parent. Um, and I have one client in particular who the loss is incredibly painful for. And she'll often uh, miss, make a misstatement of how long ago her father died. She'll often say, like, just last year. Um, and just to clarify for myself, in a time where she wasn't despondent, I just double-checked and we did the math, and it had been over five years. Um, but it's so fresh for her, you know, it feels like it just happened. Right. And grief is the way that it is because of our humanness. We, in the same way that we need attachments and we need other people and we are absolutely dependent on our relationships to other people and that's a good thing when we lose those people it hurts it is a we are biologically um, designed so to speak through selection to to be to be attached and and the the dark side of that attachment is that when we lose someone it's it's going to hurt for a long time. If it didn't hurt when we lost someone, then we never really cared to begin with. And of course, we really care. And grief is good in, in a way. I try to at least put a silver lining on it sometimes by saying that it it's an indication that we care. It's a, And it's an indication that we had a good relationship with someone. Now, again, many of us would say, Patron Ashley, that your relationship with this client was not advised but you you know putting all that professionalism aside and that criticism aside you cared about this man and you were in his life and he was in your life and you met some of his needs and he met some of your needs again we advise you not to go down that road in the future but you know that's the reality you you were mutually involved in each other's lives and and that's a nice thing. It's not professionally advised, but it's a it's a it's a nice thing. It's an altruistic thing. It's a connection thing. Your intention was good. You wanted to help, and you were helping. But you were opening yourself up to this to this huge, uh, you know, pain. This isn't to say that if you had drawn boundaries, this wouldn't have hurt. It, but it probably just would have hurt less. Or you would never have even found out, which is right. kind of, which is kind of an odd thing to think about, right? But anyway, um, so just a, sh- a short primer on – I'm writing an entire book on grief that I've been writing for the past three-plus years, and I'm probably halfway done. So, But in a nutshell, uh, self-care around grief is you want to continue to talk about it, process it make art about it, create about it, you know, let it out of you when it, when you feel compelled to, don't keep it inside. Uh, and the other thing is, is you want to, research shows that there's no stages of grief, but research does show that we vacillate between two positions, between a position of feeling the grief and reminiscing and being in pain and, you know, 
grieving. And then the other position is a position of moving on. This might be forgetting about it, not thinking about it, maybe even being in denial about it. And we go back and forth naturally between those two positions. And so as a griever, it's up to you to sense where your body wants to go. And that's a hard thing to detect. And sometimes there's barriers to going either direction. And so it's, it's kind of complicated. And if you find trouble, then I would go to then I would definitely specifically talk with your therapist about it. Having said that, a lot of therapists don't know what they're doing when it comes to grief. And so just be skeptical of your therapist regarding that. <laughs> well, and I would also say to if you're really stuck in a grief process, Research your own family history around grief, because often what I've found with clients is we're kind of grieving this death, but there might be other intergenerational deaths that have never really been addressed. Right. Or look into how many cultures deal with death. Western culture, kind of a big dud when it comes to death. Totally. But, but other cultures do death really well. Yeah. <laughs> And there's lots of room for, I mean, think of, you know, in Italy, women are allowed to be widows for the rest of their lives, if they so choose. Um, In in Judaism, you say the mourner's Kaddish every day for 30 days. Yeah. And then it's your choice whether you go to synagogue every week for a year. In fact, if you go to any Jewish synagogue anywhere in the world, you can put your deceased friend's name on a list and you can stand when they read the mourner's cottage and they will say his name out loud so there's lots of places to grieve with a community even in the way that in our culture there's like you know there's nowhere to go there's also yoga for grief and loss which i've also a lot of clients who feel like they have no space in their room in their lives have gone to that and had a good experience and just cried it out on the floor with a bunch of other people who were sad yeah What's that movie with Adam Driver in which I think the father dies and then they all sit in these like short chairs? I think they're Jewish. It's a Jewish family. Do, do you know about that costume? I don't know that one. It's um, sword chairs. Yeah, like God, I could be butchering it, but I think it's this. It's a Jewish sort of like a family drama comedy, and it has Justin Bateman in it as well, and it has a bunch of famous people, but some some. I think their father dies, if I'm not mistaken, and so all the siblings come back home. And I think for a week or for a few days, they all sit in this room together. Mourners, that's their sitting cottage. I don't know about the short chairs, though. Oh, well, um, uh, I could be making that up. But you, you, you sit in a room and, and people come and visit. And Yeah. Oh, okay. Sitting and, Shiva. Okay. Sitting Shiva. So, um, uh, you know, let's just put aside my uh bumbling of that tradition to that movie and move on um other self-care things patron ashley is to protect yourself because most people are terrible when it comes to reacting to grief especially something like this because they're going to be like well it's a client why do you care or well you know people who use drugs they die or some you know they're they're not going to a lot a lot of people have a really hard time because our culture is just so backward and childish when it comes to grief. A, a lot of people don't know how to react in a way that is caring or, or in a way that helps you. They, they want to try, they want to help, but they're, they're, they're just so bad at it that, or anxious or something. And, and so just, 
you have to protect yourself from certain people. You'll you'll realize who are the people that understand and listen well and the people who don't. Also, as, as I was saying earlier, you, you, you want to try to move towards accepting the fact that you will be grieving for a while. You know, it's normal. It's a part of life. And once you accept that grieving, it will be less bothersome to you, if that makes any sense. Um, so, Rebecca, what advice professionally for the Professional. future do you have? Oh, well, can I... Can I give one more way of contextualizing grief yeah. that I uh, actually showed up for my presentation? I did some research on it and discovered it was much older than I thought it was. Um, in that sense that when you come across something, you think it's new when really it's been sitting around forever. So this is Warden from 1991. This is his model of grief, and it's the tasks of grief. It spells out tear. So T is to accept the reality of the loss. E is to experience the pain of the loss. A is to adjust to the new environment without the lost person. And R is to reinvest in a new reality. And that is one of the models I use with my clients and people have found it really helpful. So I offer that model. Great. All right, well, let's take a break, and when we get back, we'll uh, go into professional advice for the future. What do you say? Okay. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't already become a patron of the podcast, do so by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go there, become a patron of the podcast, and get access to all of our patron-exclusive episodes. We have hundreds of them. All right, so... Plus, there's the mug. Plus, there's well, if if you're a twenty dollar no. patron, then you get a mug. <laughs> because I'm on the mug. I know it's a great mug. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite mug. It's actually a very. I would use this mug even if my mug was not on the mug. Or I'm your mug. So excited to be on the mug. <laughs> All right. So for patron Ashley, advice uh, for professional stuff. The the main thing here that we're both trying to tell you is boundaries and trying not to be the savior. You will very quickly burn out as you already are experiencing right now. You're, you're already having the classic burnout symptom, which is that you don't want to work anymore. You're because when you go to work, it's associated with all this pain and all this loss and all this powerlessness. And that, would happen anyway, even if the, even if you did have appropriate and therapeutic boundaries with this client, but it would have been a lot less hurtful. So you, you don't want to burn out. Plus, you, you don't want to let your savior complex, which is true to most therapists, if not all, you don't want your savior, savior complex to ruin your career through confidentiality complaints or getting sued or being written up or something. It's just not worth it. it. It's hard to say goodbye and it's hard to let go. But the more practice you get, the sooner in your career, the better. Right. Like, I mean, this is just, that's, that's what happens in this work. It's, I have said goodbye so many times. Right. Um, and that's what the work asks for us from us. And right. so it's important to get used to that. It's a very strange part of this work. Very, very strange. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, Patron Ashley, in your career, you will help 
thousands upon thousands of people. And if you're going to be able to, you know, change all those people's lives and help all those people and have therapeutic attachments with all those people, then you have to have an ability to say goodbye and move on. Otherwise, your life will be ruined by this career and you won't be able to help anybody. So uh, it's actually an, an altruistic thing to all your future clients that you draw boundaries with your current clients when needed. The other thing that I want to say is you, if you're working with addicts, particularly opioid addicts, you need to be realistic about their prognosis. Be, you know, before when I was reading your email, before you got to the part of him passing away, before you got to him uh, dying, I was already thinking that he might die. And, and why do I think that? Well, because I've had opioid clients die or almost die. Opioid, you know, people who are addicted to opioids frequently die from accidental overdose. It's 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 one of the hallmarks of heroin addiction and other, you know, particularly heroin addiction. Most opioid addictions will lead to heroin because it's the cheapest and the easiest to access as opposed to like Percocet and stuff. Many famous people have died from accidental heroin overdose. Philip Seymour Hoffman, River Phoenix, John Belushi, Sid Vicious, Basquiat, Mitch Hedberg, Lane Staley, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone, Corey Monteith of Glee, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and, and so on and so on and so on. None of these people, from what we can tell, wanted to die. But be, they wanted to live, and they, they were taking a normal dose, what they thought was a normal dose. Right. And, and that guy from Glee, as we podcast, it's the anniversary of his death within a few weeks, or his birthday. There was a bunch of stuff on him on social media, and I just remember, you know, I was a Glee fanatic, loved that show so much. I didn't know he had an addiction history. Yeah. And I just, you know, the, the story was he went home for the weekend he was alone in his hotel room, and he overdosed. Right. You know, I mean, it's that kind of quick and simple, and especially these days when stuff is cut with all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and, we, and you know, the, sorry, and the main thing is when people relapse because they don't realize that their tolerance has plummeted and they don't need their regular dose. Because as you build a tolerance, you need more and more to get high, and... So this guy presumably was sober for a number of months, and and when he relapsed, he probably went to a similar dosage in the past, and that's when people die because he, he probably only needed like ten percent of what he actually gave himself. So, so there's all that. Plus the uh, so if you're working with heroin users, you really have to prepare yourself for the very real possibility that your clients might pass, might die. I, ha I, when I was working more often with opioid addicts, I, I had one client who right, it was either right after or maybe even during my session, she went outside and shot up and, uh, and she accidentally overdosed and she passed out on the sidewalk. Wow. And, and someone saw her and called the ambulance and she went to the hospital and, but I didn't know because it was, it was far enough away from my office that I, I didn't know 
And the next time I saw her, she told me about this. And it was it was terrifying that right. I was just talking with her. And then right after that, she went out and overdosed and and nearly died. And it felt horrifying that that I, you know, what should I have done differently to get her to have? what if she had died? Mm -hmm. And it it's a scary thing. And you just realize that when it comes to opioid addiction, it's so powerful that you as a therapist are a tiny little ant in comparison to the power of, you know, just you, if you watch game of Thrones, you know, you're the heroin addiction is like the mountain, right. Or a dragon or something. And you're just, you're nothing compared to the power of that thing. The other thing is, is, as I was reading your email and you were like, yeah, I was working with this opioid person who had opioid addiction and he was sober for this time. When I read that, I was like, well, as far as you know, because, mm -hmm. because I've worked with, again, opioid uh, addicts and, and have realized that the shame runs so deep for them that even though they know that they could tell me, they still won't tell me sometimes when they are back on the, when they're, when they fall off the wagon. And it, I've had that exhibited to me time and time again, where I've been like, okay, surely this time I can be very, very sure that this person is being honest about their sobriety. And every once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll come to realize that that person was using the entire time I was working with them. And so you just have to, when you're working with people who struggle with addictions, you just have to realize how powerful the addiction is and, and, it's another reason why you want to just keep your distance a little bit because there's a chance that they're not even telling you the truth. Not that they're bad people. They, you know, they're good people, but addiction is a very, very, very powerful thing. And opioid addiction is perhaps the most powerful. So any final words, Rebecca, about this situation and for patron Astrally? <sighs> well, I was just thinking about the client that came in the other day with the sniffles and told me that they had used cocaine quite prolifically in the week previous. Yeah. I was like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, our clients, you know, things happen, unexpected things happen. People make choices that you yourself could never imagine making, but it doesn't mean that that, that doesn't happen. And so part of having boundaries is – to protect yourself from, you know, people's lives are very intense and unimaginable. Right. If you haven't grown up in a culture where there's heavy drug use and violence, um, you know, some of these situations can be really unexpected. So there was an interesting article in the New York Times about uh, substance abuse among lawyers, including heroin use. Uh, there was a woman whose ex-husband had passed away and she found him, and she said to the medics, I don't know what happened. And they said, oh, honey, he overdosed on heroin. And she was like, no, no, that can't possibly what's happening. And they were right, because they see it all the time. Um, and this whole thing unfolds as she tries to put together the last year, years of his life, realizing, you know, even in all the pickups and drop-offs of their time co-parenting, that he, he was high on heroin. Um, and she couldn't see the signs. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, even people 
even people who are intimate in this situation might miss what's what's going on, not just the therapist. Right. Yeah, and the thing to remember about opioid addiction is for a lot of people, it's essentially a maintenance issue. They will use it to survive, to stave off withdrawal symptoms. And they will use it to get normal. They won't be entirely normal as if they were had been sober for a year or something, but they're not going to be walking around stumbling or slurring their words or anything. They're, they're, they get just enough dosage so that they can get through the day in the same way that the first time you smoked a cigarette, you were like, whoa, I feel dizzy. But the thousandth time you smoked a cigarette, it didn't do anything to you. It just brought you up to normal, right? And so with a lot of opioid, uh, you know, people who suffer, suffer from opioid addiction, that's what they're dealing with. And a lot of them will only use to the point of intoxication when they can, when, when they know that there's not going to be anyone around or something. And that's when they use more of a more of a higher dose so that they can get high, so to speak. But uh, I find that a lot of, including myself, I, I used to think that people who used heroin were just like, because the way they portray it in the movies and stuff, it's just like they're completely whacked out of their minds and they're complete junkies and they don't make any sense and they're you know they're all they're crazy people, but. If you've ever taken a pain medication like Percocet or OxyContin or something, that's all that it is. It it just it doesn't make you a crazy person. It takes away your pain and it slows you down. And uh, it's it's you know. So anyway, well, thanks for joining me in this podcast, Rebecca. That was that for that episode. Patron Ashley, let us know how you're doing. And I, I hope that you're doing well. And I hope that you can uh, grieve well. And I hope that you can get back on in the saddle and start helping people again. Because there's a lot of people out there who need someone like you who cares a lot. And I'm sure that in the future you will avoid getting into these kinds of boundary issues. Because... Now you know the hazards of that. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because why should they keep care of themselves, Rebecca? Well, it's really a service to the universe to care for yourself. It's a gift. That's right.